Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. I know that I was in shock and I love shock (laughs) because, you know, it just, it numbs you a little bit and your body is an amazing thing because it really kind of helped me slowly introduce my new reality and it... I don't know. I feel like it kind of protected me a little bit in those first few days. That was Scarlett Lewis, mother of six-year-old Jesse Lewis, talking about what she felt after learning that her son Jesse had been murdered at Sandy Hook Elementary School in one of the worst mass shootings this country has ever seen. In the years since losing Jesse, Scarlett has dedicated her life to the prevention of school shootings which puts front and center the pain and helplessness of any person capable of committing such a heinous act. In her case, Sandy Hook shooter Adam Lanza. I think it's very important that we remember that he was a human being and he was a human being in pain. And that means that that shooting was preventable. And all school violence, all school shootings are preventable, 100%. Kimmy Culp, and this is All the Wiser, a one-for-one charitable podcast. During COVID lockdowns and the school and office closures that came with it, there was a steep decline in mass shootings. Sadly, as our worlds have opened up, tragic shootings are yet again on the rise. Every time I hear about a school shooting, I feel sick to my stomach. It's hard to wrap our heads around how it has happened yet again and how we live in a country or a world where this even exists. I think like many people, I feel helpless. Like there is very little we can do to prevent the next shooting that is more than likely just months away. Today, I'm going to ask you to challenge that belief that we cannot fall into cynicism and despair because the bottom line about school shootings is they are preventable. They are preventable if we keep our schools safe while addressing the root cause. And after speaking with our guest today, Scarlett Lewis, I no longer feel helpless. And I promise, after you hear Scarlett's story and message, you will feel a renewed sense of hope. Today's episode proudly supports the Jesse Lewis Choose Love movement. In the wake of the Sandy Hook massacre, which took the lives of 20 students and six educators, in addition to the perpetrator and his mother, Scarlett began the Jesse Lewis Choose Love movement. 
Inspired by the bravery of her son, her own choice to forgive, and her realization that love, connection, and belonging are universal wants and needs that connect all of us. And that if the shooter had received more of this in his life, the Sandy Hook massacre may have never occurred. Choose Love is a no-cost, next-generation, social and emotional learning and character education program designed to teach students, educators, and staff how to choose love in any circumstance, creating safer and more connected schools. Her work has extended to parents, caregivers, community leaders, and even into the walls of prisons. Inspired by six-year-old Jesse Lewis, the Choose Love movement has reached 2 million people in 95 countries. Scarlett, welcome to All the Wiser. Thank you so much, Kimmy. It's an honor to be here. We've talked often with our guests, as simple as it sounds, that every story has a beginning. And I was thinking about the beginning of your story that we're going to talk about today. And so I wanted to talk about the birth of Jesse, where you were Mm. in your life, you know, and sort of what you remember of him as a little boy growing up. Absolutely. Oh my gosh. Uh, Yes. So that was, believe it or not, almost 15 years ago. And I love introducing him this way. He was born 11 pounds. (laughs) So he was a C-section, just larger than life. And they took him to kind of take care of him. And then he was in the nursery. So really, they showed him to me, but I didn't really get to see him or handle him. And the first time I really got to take a good look at him was in the nursery. And I remember walking down to the nursery and coming up upon all of these nurses taking pictures through the window And I walked up behind them and I said, what are you taking pictures of? And they said, there's this enormous baby. And they're, you know, they have the the see-through plastic bassinets. And there was Jesse next to a normal six or seven pounder. And so he looked enormous and it was adorable. And I like introducing him that way because that's how he lived his life. He was so energetic, always on the move, always happy, always pushing the limit. (laughs) I mean, that is a big baby. That is no joke. Yeah. So the early years, I know you were a mother of two boys. So Mm -hmm. paint a picture about those early years as as a new mom raising two boys. Mm -hmm. I was a single mom with two boys. And so I was doing everything alone. And I I had family as help and and Jesse's dad helped me out a little bit, but mostly it was, it was me. And, you know, looking back, I I think that it was paradise, (laughs) but it was tough too. I mean, I had a full-time job and so I was on maternity leave for only six weeks and then I would go to work and I would come back. Uh, I worked long hours And we live on a little horse farm in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. So I had horses and dogs and chickens and a lot of times other animals. So it was a really great place to raise kids. And it just rejuvenated me, but it was also a lot of work. My mom would always say to me, oh my gosh, why do you choose 
to live a life like that. <laughs> it's so I was going to say, in addition to the two kids <laughs> and the job, you're in charge of an entire farm and taking care of all these animals. Yeah. You know, it was, I, I've just always loved horses. And for me, it was a joy. It was work, but it was a joy. And I get joy out of work. And you and I talking before this call, that is abundantly clear to me and it'll be clear to our <laughs> listeners after listening to our conversation today. So as you've shared, you're a single mom with two young boys. The course of your life changed on December 14th, 2012 in an unimaginable way. Mm -hmm. What do you remember about that morning so that morning started off like any other. JT was 12 years old and in seventh grade. And so he left before and went on the bus. And then uh, I was getting Jesse ready. To, his father was picking him up to take him to school. And I walked him out. This was, you know, before I would then take off to go to my job, drive the 45 minute commute to my job. And so I walked Jesse out to, his car. And I remember turning around to give him a hug. And now remember this was December 14th in Connecticut. So it was cold and there was frost all over the side of my car. And I turned around to give Jesse a hug. And I noticed that he had written in the frost with his little fingernail, I love you. And mm -hmm. he had drawn hearts in all of my windows. And I just thought that was amazing. I knew that that was one of life's moments. And so I said, you stay right here. Hold on for one minute. I'm going to run in and get my cell phone. Ran in, got my cell phone. I remember positioning him right by the message. I took a picture. I actually deleted a picture because it was overexposed. I took another one. Then I took a close-up of the actual message. And then I gave him a big hug and kiss and put him in Neil's car. And that was the last time that I ever saw him. And that was the last picture ever taken. And it's incredible that that moment and that you were cognizant of that moment, you know, and you soaked it in, in the way that you did and captured it. Yes, it was. I'm so thankful for that, but I practice being present and I owe it to that practice for realizing that even in that moment, you know, that was so incredible to have your son write, I love you. And it was just a, a beautiful moment in time, but I definitely was present to capture it. Yeah. With capturing it with such a full heart as a mom. Yes. And his mom. Yes. When did you learn about the shooting and, and what did you hear? I guess the early minutes, hours of the aftermath of the shooting and when you learned that it was at Jesse's school. So, you know, I gave Jesse a big hug and kiss, sent him off to school with his dad, and then I drove to work. And I remember the drive to work. I talked with a friend that I've had since I was four years old and she lived in Illinois and we kind of, you know, did the normal, I don't know, just complaining about stuff on the way to work, you know, just our normal morning talk. And then I, I got to my job and just kind of got my coffee and was getting to my desk and people started coming up to me saying, you know, that there's been a shooting in Sandy Hook. And I thought, oh my God, that's terrible, you know, but I wasn't alarmed. You hear about shootings a lot. <laughs> we did back then and we do now. And it usually never affects directly you, you know? 
And so I thought that's awful. And in my mind, I thought maybe in a business or maybe in the middle of the street or a domestic dispute. And then somebody else came up a little while later saying, you know, it was in a school. And I thought, oh no, that's just terrible. Uh, I wonder what school, but still never in a million years did I think that it was in one of my kids' schools. Believe it or not, (laughs) I have two kids in two different schools there. And uh, then someone else said, um, you know, that it was actually in Sandy Hook Elementary School. Doesn't your son go there? And I said, yes. And I pictured a domestic dispute for some reason that maybe a boyfriend came in with a gun or I, I didn't know. But I left and started driving to the school. I'm not 100% sure how I realized that all the parents were supposed to meet up with their kids at the firehouse. So if you look at the setup, there's a firehouse right at the end of the cul-de-sac. The school is at the end of the cul-de-sac. So I started my drive to the firehouse. And I, I wasn't alarmed until I got maybe about a quarter of a mile away from the school. And I had to park there because there were cars lining the streets, people running all over the place. There were helicopters. There were first responders everywhere. There were army men. (laughs) And I thought, oh my God. And so I parked the car on the side of the street and I started to run. And I came up to the firehouse and I walked up to the first official looking person I saw in a police uniform. And I said, I'm looking for Jesse Lewis. And he said, I think he went to that house. And there's a little yellow house to the left of the firehouse. So I was relieved and I ran up to the little yellow house. I knocked on the door, an older man answered the phone. And I said, was Jesse Lewis here? And he said, yeah, I think so. But I think that they all went to the daycare. Now, Jesse had gone to the daycare on the other side of Sandy Hook Elementary School. So I was texting his dad at this point. And I said, go look at the daycare. I think that he went over there. I'm going to go back to the firehouse. So we were kind of tag teaming this. But then I went back to the firehouse and, you know, just continued asking questions have you seen my son? And I was told, if you don't have your child, you need to go into the back room and put their name down on a missing persons list. And I remember just resisting doing that because I thought, well, that's that's ridiculous. I'm not going to put his name down on a list. I just want to find him and leave. And so I really resisted doing that for a long time. Finally, of course, I did go into that room and I remember seeing just this kind of loose leaf sheet of paper on a table. And there were a long list of names. I I had to turn it over, write his name on the back. And never in a million years did I think that all of those people were dead. I mean, that was just, it just didn't even occur to me. And so I continued walking around. And at the same time, Neil's walking around asking questions. So he went and I thought, finally, I just thought, this is ridiculous. I'm going to go to the school. And uh, they said, you know, you you can't go to the school. We're still searching. We're sweeping. We're re-sweeping. And I'm like, well, I'm going to go because I'm looking for my son and he's not here. So I'm going to go to the school. And they were like, well, just wait. You know, we think that some of the kids may have run outside and they're hiding and it's going to take a while for us to find them. And I thought, 
Well, actually, that makes sense. That sounds like Jesse. And in my mind, I thought, well, he's taken a small contingent of kids. He's run into the woods. It's going to take them a while to find them. So that kind of calmed me down a little bit. And uh, at this time, I had JT, who's my 12-year-old son. He was in lockdown in Spanish class, actually, in seventh grade in a different school in Sandy Hook. He was texting me and he was saying, mom, can I come and wait with you? And I said, well, yeah, of course. I'm thinking in my mind, when we find Jesse, he's going to want his big brother here. So here we are waiting at the firehouse and parents are escalating in their demands, wanting to know where their kids are. And I mean, literally, we were there for hours and not given any information. And you can only imagine what that was like. When was the moment when you were told that Jesse had died in the shooting? It was hours later. It was in the afternoon. And there was actually, it was pretty chaotic. And and there was a man that came up to me. We were sitting in kind of like a little circle, our family circle together in the parking lot. And he came up to me He kind of bent down, he put his hand on my knee and he said, there's no easy way to say this, your son's dead. And by then I had an idea. I mean, peripherally, I was experiencing other families crying and some falling to the ground and writhing in pain and clearly something really big was going on. And so by the time he told me that, I had already come to the conclusion. You had a knowing. I had a knowing. And you know, there's there are a lot of people that are upset that it took so long to give us that information. I know now that they were identifying the bodies and making sure that they had the right identities. They'd asked me a few questions. I know I had a police officer come up to me at one point and say, Do you have a recent picture of Jesse? Well, by that time my cell phone had died. So I had to sit in his police car to charge my phone to get a picture off my phone. And then maybe an hour later, someone else came up to me and said, you know, trying to be casual, did Jesse have any identifying marks on his body? And I thought about that and I thought, yeah, he had a mole on the top of his right foot, but you know that that is not a good question. Yeah. to ask. You 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 kind of know why they're asking that. And you know, and I was in shock. And so in hindsight, I kind of appreciate the time that went by. I know I know a lot of families are upset that there was so much time that went by before we were told, but for me, I almost appreciated it because I came to that conclusion on my own and I don't know. It was horrible. Yeah. I can't begin to imagine. Mm -hmm. So the wake of that grief and the days that followed, how are you, I guess, how are you even able to stand or function? What what is the wake of the day you lost Jesse? So we were put in a van because we were in the back of the firehouse, but the front of the firehouse was chaos with media. And so they brought this unmarked van around to the back, got us in there, drove us to our individual cars that were parked on the street. They dropped my mom and I off at my car. And of course, the first thing I realized getting into the car was the car seat in the back seat. You know, Jesse was still 
riding in a car seat. And I remember looking at that thinking, I don't need that anymore. And so we drove to my mom's house. She lives across town. And that was really a blessing because nobody knew where I was. And I know that media were camped out in front of the victims, other victims' families' homes, but no one knew where I was. So we had relative peace and quiet. And my first concern was for JT, my 12-year-old son. And, you know, even at the firehouse, you know, I, I had mentioned that I practiced being present with my boys. But that practice extended into conflict and, and difficult times as well. So even at the firehouse, I maintained that practice of being present, realizing that JT was there watching me in the moment. I felt his eyes on me. I knew that I was teaching him. <laughs> he was going to follow my example on how to handle difficulty and suffering and roadblocks and tragedy. He was learning from me in the moment. And so just that awareness helped me rise to the occasion, even at the firehouse. And that extended to going back to my mom's house. You know, I wanted to make sure that he was taken care of. I know that I was in shock and I love shock <laughs> because, you know, it just, it, it, it numbs you a little bit. And it, your body is an amazing thing because it really kind of helped me slowly introduce my new reality. And it, I don't know, I feel like it kind of protected me a little bit in those first few days. And the awareness of, you know, wanting to be there for my son also helps me rise to the occasion. I have just an incredible support system. So the fact that I was at my mom's house and all of my siblings came and were there that first night. And then I had friends that I had grown up with that were there. In fact, I asked them not to come and they came anyway. And so they were just there and they didn't know what to say. They didn't know what to do. There was nothing to say or do, but they were just there with me. And, and they were it was almost like they were helping me manage, hold the pain, uh, shoulder the pain. And friends started flying in the next day and it was just a full house. And that helped. That helped because we had that van that I talked about. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure who rented that van or how we had it, but we had that. We actually also had police protection believe it or not, that was assigned to each of the families. So we, during the first few days, rode around in the back of a cop car, in the back of a state trooper car. And that felt safe too. That added to a feeling of safety when your whole world was crumbling and you had that, I don't know, that sentinel at the door. That's such a clear answer to a question that I think most people can't fathom what that would look like after that trauma and loss. But the fact that your maternal instincts and love for JT and awareness of what he was going through and the, the role that shock played and the role that, that being surrounded by love played, that security played, 
you beautifully illustrated all of those things and, and how they carried you. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I slept with JT for quite a while after that, just just so that he felt safe and he knew that I was there and I wasn't going anywhere. I wanted to explain we were assigned police protection because there were threats coming in <laughs> on our lives, believe it or not. But that was almost a blessing because we had that protection there and that was nice to have. Where were threats coming in from? I don't want to get derailed by that, but I don't I don't either and okay. I don't know and it doesn't make any it sense. Sounds, okay. I know there were people that had filed petitions to protest the children's funerals and that equally makes no sense, but yeah. sometimes our world doesn't make sense. The fact that there was one of the worst mass murders in US history at an elementary school <laughs> doesn't make any sense either. Yeah. So you shared with us the backdrop of of raising Jesse and JT in the farmhouse. And you also explained being at your mom's and that you had a lot of mixed emotions about returning home. You did return home. So explain to us going back to your house and what you found upon your return. Yeah. So we took the van with a whole bunch of people and returned to my house. I honestly, in the beginning, didn't think that I would ever be able to return to my farmhouse. I mean, I had raised my two boys there as a single mom and I knew that I would walk in and see Jesse's boots <laughs> by the front door. I knew that I'd see his toothbrush at the sink, his little PJs that he had thrown off at the side of the bed that morning. And I didn't think that I was strong enough to be able to see that, but it came down to literally who was going to dress him in the casket. Was it going to be his dad or myself? And that just became something that was so important to me. And I remember thinking, it's so cold. I want to make sure that I pick out warm clothes for him. And it was just really important for me that I dress him that final time. Something that, of course, you never think you will ever have to think about. So uh, I went home with a whole bunch of other people there to support me, family members, friends. And I walked in and walked straight through the house into Jesse's room, kind of almost like with blinders on. Went to his dresser, picked out clothes, warm clothes, layers, and then turned around. I had the clothes in my arms and I walked. I was really just going to kind of make a beeline out. And I saw this message that Jesse had written on our kitchen chalkboards, literally the side of my oven. It's a wall, but I had spray painted it with chalkboard spray paint. And he had written a message shortly before he died. I, it was the first time that I saw it. And he had written three words, nurturing, healing, love. They were phonetically spelled because he was in first grade and just learning how to write. But I was just flabbergasted. I, I, I couldn't believe it. And, and I just, it stopped me in my tracks. It was incredible. And how did you interpret his words? I mean, what did it mean to you? And, and how did you experience his words on that chalkboard? I knew that he had had a spiritual awareness that he wasn't going to be here for very much longer. 
I knew it. And he wanted to leave a message of comfort for his family and friends. And I took it as that, nurturing, healing, love. But I also knew that it was a message of inspiration. I knew that if the shooter, who had been a student at the school, whose mother had even taught at the school, had been able to give and receive nurturing, healing, love, that the tragedy would never have happened. It was so simple. And I knew in a way that I would be spending the rest of my life spreading that message. I knew that that was a life-changing message. I didn't know how or what that meant, but that moment changed my life forever. Yeah, I was going to ask you, and I think I knew what the answer was going to be, but that question about, do you think he knew between the I love you and, and that message, but it is clear that you knew that he knew. Oh no, he absolutely knew. And <laughs> I, I was thinking about that this morning as I was walking on the beach where I am right now. So blessed thinking that literally I was walking and I was thinking, should I ask for a sign? Should I ask for a sign? And I thought, you know what? I don't need to because I've had so many that I know. What a blessing. Yeah. I imagine that that moment shaped, as you said, I mean, it shaped the rest of your life, but as early as his funeral, I read that you said, and this won't be verbatim, but that the tragedy started with an angry thought within the shooter and that it escalated to violence. And your call to action for everyone who was there and Jesse's memory was to consciously change angry thoughts into loving ones. Mm -hmm. But to have that message be so clear in a moment where your own anger could have taken over, right? It just really stood out to me that so early on the message was clear to you. Yes. At the funeral, everybody had been asking me, what can I do? Like this thing that happened, what can we do? And so, I said to everybody, the congregation at his funeral, there were hundreds of people there. And I said, look, there is something you can do. You can think about what you think about because this whole tragedy started with an angry thought in Adam Lanza's head. And an angry thought can be changed. So start thinking about what you think about and choose one loving thought over an angry thought. Replace an angry thought with a loving thought every day. And by doing that, you'll positively impact yourself, those around you, and through the ripple effect, you will make this a safer, more peaceful and loving world. As you said, people went out to the four corners of the United States who had flown in for the funeral, and they started calling me, emailing me, and texting me about a week later saying that one simple act had completely changed their life so many choices that you make early on. And one of the choices I want to talk about is the choice of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. At what point do you reconcile that piece of it? And not only Adam, but his his mother and the and the role she played. What is your journey of forgiveness? Forgiveness is probably the most important part of my healing process. By the way, I'm still working on it because <laughs> it starts with a choice and then it becomes a process. All of this I've learned through this experience. And I've heard you say it's a process with no neat ending, which I thought was 
you know, succinctly and accurately put. Absolutely. You know, I, I saw so many people reacting and I kind of sat back and I watched and I listened. There was so much blame, anger, obviously, but blame that was going around from everyone. It seemed like fingers were flying everywhere. And especially on Adam and his mom, Adam, the former student who brought the gun and, you know, did the uh, actual massacre and then his mother who gave him access to the guns. But I realized that that was too easy. It was just too easy because first of all, if it was really all their fault, then it would never have happened before. But it had happened before many times. And by the way, it's happened many times since. And the interesting thing was I had had a similar experience as Nancy Lanza. I mean, Nancy Lanza was a single mom and she was dealing with a child that had special needs. She had gone with him to Sandy Hook Elementary School. She had talked to the school counselor there. She had had him tested. Uh, He came back needing seven special programs, five of which were denied to him because they could be, because they were relating to social and emotional learning. And the two that were given to him were because he had a speech impediment and he couldn't touch paper. They were more academic. And, you know, I too had a son that went through testing that came back with some sensory issues and was denied services. And so I understood. I had empathy for her journey. She wanted help. She needed help. And she didn't find it. And so, you know, off the bat, I had empathy for her. In fact, I had said, and it was not popular, that there were 28 victims in that tragedy because I was including the shooter and his mother. I knew that Adam had to be in a tremendous amount of pain in order to feel as hopeless as he did and as angry and as isolated and as traumatized to choose to go back and perpetrate such a horrific crime. And it turns out, going back through his life and the research that people did, that that was the case. I was curious about the process and distinction of forgiveness when the person or people are no longer alive. What did the process of forgiveness look like for both of them who were deceased? Well, first of all, (laughs) I watched other people who had given away personal power to Adam Lanza and his mother because they were enraged And I was not going to allow another human being to control how I felt, what my behavior was. Uh, I, I did not want to live my life in anger. And so that was part of my decision to forgive. And you know, what it looked like. I can, I can actually give you a visual because this is now translated into a lesson that we teach, but I felt like at the time 
that I was attached to Adam and his mom with an umbilical cord. But it didn't come out of my belly button. It came out of my side and it ran into the side of Adam. And my personal power was literally draining out of me in the form of anger and resentment and going into him. And I was attached to him. He had power over my thoughts that impacted how I felt, that then impacted how I acted, my behavior, my how I showed up for my relationships. And forgiveness was like a big set of scissors. <laughs> it was a choice that I made. I took those scissors, I cut that cord that attached me to pain. All my personal power flowed back into me and it felt so good. It doesn't mean that I don't fall back into anger. I do have moments that come up during the year, like, you know, Jesse's birthday, Mother's Day. We just had Mother's Day. My birthday, Christmas, <laughs> there are a few, where I literally have to take a step back, take a deep breath and forgive again. There are many other things that came up that popped up in uh, in the whole experience of the Sandy Hook tragedy that I also had to forgive. And so it starts with a choice and then becomes a process. But I think the most important thing is that it is a choice. And in some instances, it's the only way to take our personal power back. And I imagine you are often asked about the solution to school shootings that took your baby boy Mm -hmm. And I've heard you say that Adam Lanza was not born a mass murderer. Mm -hmm. What do you believe would have prevented Adam? And what do you believe is the solution? And let this be the segue into Choose Love. Well, first of all, I want to point out that I call him Adam. And I do that for a reason. I don't do that in the media. But I do do that in situations like this and when I'm talking to teachers because I think it's very important that we remember that he was a human being and he was a human being in pain. And that means that that shooting was preventable. And all school violence, all school shootings are preventable, 100%. And you don't hear many people say that, but they are. And Sandy Hook was also preventable. And I just want to make that point to all of your listeners. And I think once, I, I know that there's a movement towards not saying the shooter's name. And I agree with that movement to a certain degree that we don't say their names in the media. But I think that we need to remember that these are human beings and human beings in pain. And so that means that everything that I do now going forward is in honor of Jesse and also in honor of Adam and the Adam Lances of the world. Because what I've realized and one of the most important lessons that I've realized is that there are only two kinds of people in the world. There are good people like you and me, and then there are good people in pain. And that's a hopeful statement because there's always something that we can do to help ease that pain. So I started looking at the issues that we have in schools. It's not just school violence. It's not just kids shooting other kids and educators. It's substance abuse on the rise. It's bullying on the rise. It's suicide 
on the rise. It's mental illness, anxiety, depression on the rise. And by the way, it's not that we don't know this. We're tracking the numbers upward. We have programming in our schools to address this. And so my original focus was school safety, obviously, because that's number one. We have to keep kids and educators safe in schools, period. And we can't. But then I realized, wait a minute, (laughs) there are all these other issues as well. What's going on? What is going on? And then I realized that we are not addressing the cause of these issues with the current programming in the schools. We're addressing the issues themselves. That's what the focus is. But we're not addressing the cause of the issues or why kids end up doing those things and being that way. Yeah. And I think this notion of standing for something versus the reactive state and the anti-campaigns, anti-bullying, anti that mm-hmm. that you chose to stand for a solution, which was at the root and the heart of prevention, right? So these shootings never happened. And you have reached people all around the world mm-hmm. with your work that you've dedicated your life to. And it has a formula. And I want, if you can sort of give the elevator pitch, the high level four pillars and what they mean and stand for. Absolutely. So we teach a formula that can help you thoughtfully respond in any situation, circumstance, or interaction with love. In effect, this gives you your personal power back. It transfers that locus of control from outside to inside. And the four pillars of the formula are courage, gratitude, forgiveness, and compassion in action. And we start with courage. And of course, I have to talk about Jesse's courage. He actually saved nine of his classmates' lives before losing his own. And courage is the most important character value. It's the one that underlies all the rest. And we all have the capacity for Jesse's courage. And there are extraordinary acts of courage like Jesse's. And then there are everyday acts of courage. And that's what we focus on in our programming. The courage to get up in the morning and put your best foot forward. The courage to do the right thing. The courage to tell the truth. The courage to be your authentic self, to be vulnerable, to face your fear instead of resist and avoid it or even numb yourself. So we start with courage. Science tells us that courage is like a muscle. We can actually teach it and we can strengthen it with practice. And then we go into gratitude. Gratitude, probably everyone's heard of, but it's so vitally important. We call it the great mind shifter because out of the thousands, tens of thousands of thoughts that we have every single day, we have an innate negative bias. So the majority of them are negative and repetitive, and that's to keep us safe. We don't even realize that mostly during the day, but we can use gratitude to shift out of our negative thinking pattern. You can only focus on one thought at a time. That means you can only focus on negativity or anger or a lower energy thought 
or a grateful thought. And there's always something to be grateful for. So you can shift your mind to gratitude. And then that actually neuroscientifically strengthens you to consider forgiveness. And by the way, this follows the nurturing, healing, love. Nurturing means loving kindness and gratitude. Healing literally means forgiveness. And when people heard that I wanted to put forgiveness in the formula, wanted to teach it in schools, almost everyone said that is way too lofty a topic to teach kids. And what we found is that it's not only not too lofty, but it becomes kids' favorite character value. And it's the one that they practice the most because they literally say it feels like a superpower and it feels so good to let it go. And kids get it and they use it. And, you know, it's, it's the adults that don't really understand it. I didn't really understand it. And it's so important. In fact, forgiveness is the key to having healthy relationships and healthy relationships are the key to happiness per Harvard University's lifespan study. <laughs> so it's it's really important and you kind of see how this this works in our lives and then compassion in action represents love. Love is compassion in action. It has two components. There's the identification of someone's need or the empathetic component. And when we feel another's pain, empathy, it's painful, lights up the same receptors in our brain as physical pain. There is the action component. The action component is when we actively do something to help ease another's pain. And that's when I say all of the nurturing, healing love we give out comes back to us. So that is compassion in action. So to put it all together, when you have the courage to be grateful, when things aren't going your way, the courage to forgive, even when the person who hurts you isn't sorry, doesn't care, or may not even know, and then the courage to step outside of your busyness and distraction and all that you have going on to help someone else you are choosing love. You're taking your personal power back and you're making the world a safer, more peaceful and loving place. And the reach of this work, teaching these four things now extends beyond kids. Absolutely. So we have included social and emotional learning, character development, neuroscience, positive psychology, mindfulness, post-traumatic growth, growth mindset, havening, tapping. Uh, it's There's so much involved in our programming. And it's now in over 10,000 schools in every state in the U.S. and 115 countries. So this is really kind of spread way beyond anything that I ever imagined. And this directly relates to school safety because Teaching these essential life skills addresses the cause of all of the issues that I had spoken about before that are escalating. And it also addresses the cause of school violence. Because when kids feel safe, when they feel seen and connected, when they can manage their emotions, when they can grow through difficulty, that they might face and even be strengthened by it when they can make responsible decisions, they're not going to want to harm one another. 
And as you're out there doing this work, as you said, reaching, you know, schools, communities, I believe you're in prisons now. How many school shootings have there been since Sandy Hook? I don't know the exact number, but there have been way too many on a consistent basis. And when that happens, and as you said, it happens frequently in this country, I imagine it's both, is it triggering? I hate to say motivator, but you dive into the work more. Is it, how do you experience that? Because it does happen so often. It does. Uh, We had a reprieve with the pandemic, actually, when all the kids were home. But unfortunately, that reprieve I knew was not going to translate into the situation getting better. And now that the kids are going back to school, we're seeing an uptick. And I just want everyone to know that those issues are preventable if we address the cause. And that's what we're doing at Choose Love. And that's another reason why I wanted to make sure that every child received access to these essential life skills that we know that they need to use in every situation in their lives that can facilitate healthy and meaningful connections and relationships. That's the basis of why we're here as human beings. And the interesting thing is we're not born with these skills and tools. We have to learn them. They're relatively easy to teach, easy to learn, but we have to teach them. And for too long, we've been assuming that these skills and tools are being taught in the home. And that's not always the case, but even so, they need to be backed up and practiced at school. This work, as you said, is now global. It's around the world. And I imagine you have, there's no metrics for how many lives you've saved and how many lives Jesse has saved beyond his passing. Because as you said, it's the prevention. You have prevented the loss of life. You have prevented school shootings with this work which I hope everybody just takes a moment to digest, including you. Mm -hmm. But this is what you wake up every day and doing. And the notion of healing, right? It's, It's a life's work, as you said, and there's those moments. But I wonder, is there healing in the doing? Or is a part of the healing, the doing, the act of this work? What role does that play? Yes, uh, that's a great question. I do believe the healing is in the doing. The healing is in the touching of children, parents, communities all over the world, sharing Jesse's message of nurturing, healing, love, sharing Jesse, and most importantly, giving essential life skills that are literally the life and breath of why we're here. So it's the greatest gift that you can give. And that's what the Jesse Lewis Choose Love movement does. So you said Jesse would be 15 today. Is that right? Yes. He saved nine lives, the lives of nine of his friends. And as you shared, wrote that message that you would then read and run with on your chalkboard. So it's clear to me that at a young age, he was a courageous, to use your words, a courageous hero and had a sense of wisdom far beyond his his years and time here. 
I am curious how he shows up for you today. That's a great question. Uh, He shows up a lot for me. (laughs) I feel like he's ultimately leading this effort in his name. He has put so many opportunities right directly in my path. (laughs) Whenever anyone says to me, wow, look at what you've done. I have Jesse tapping me on the shoulder saying, actually, mom, you (laughs) should mention that I put everything that you need right in front of you. All you had to do was show up and say yes. (laughs) And so you'll see that I I do often say that. But I, I do feel like he is very present and that he brings opportunities that are just incredible to us. He helps us spread the message and his spirit is very much alive in everything that we do. Thank you for that, for that beautiful answer and your honesty and vulnerability and passion and compassion in this conversation. There's just so much there. So thank you. We end these interviews with something that is a little light and fun called the lightning round. But I thought we should flip it in honor of Jesse and we will have you do the lightning round through the lens of what Jesse would say. Ah, that's fun. (laughs) Okay, I will channel him. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Favorite breakfast? Definitely favorite breakfast was Misty Vale Deli and ham, egg, and cheese on a soft roll. He would eat half for breakfast and half for lunch. It was so easy for me. (laughs) Favorite superhero? Favorite superhero was Superman. Best way to spend a weekend? Best way to spend a weekend was definitely with his mom. (laughs) Of course. Uh, On the farm, running after chickens and riding his big brother's horse. Favorite movie or shows? You know what is so interesting? So a few nights before his murder, we had watched Justin Bieber's documentary in bed together. And he had turned to me and he said, mom, I want to be one of Justin Bieber's backup dancers. <laughs> so he, uh, he, we loved watching little things like that in bed, but also reading. Best personality traits. He was always happy and smiling and joking around, energetic and very protective of me. I love that. So the last one is for you. And if you can finish this sentence for me, Jesse's legacy is? Jesse's legacy is teaching individuals how to thoughtfully respond in any situation, circumstance, or interaction that arises with love. That is beautiful. Scarlett, I am grateful to our friend Peggy who introduced us and honored for your trust and sharing your story and Jesse's story with me and really proud to support the Jesse Lewis Choose Love movement today. So thank you. Thank you so much, Kimmy. This was a beautiful interview. Well, thank you. You have a beautiful message and I am happy to know that you are on a beautiful beach as well. Beauty all around, right? Yes, yes, absolutely. 
Today's episode is brought to you by All the Happier, a new online digital course rooted in positive psychology. All the Happier takes the lessons and wisdom from all the wiser and teaches you with science-backed evidence how to bring more meaning, connection, positive emotion, and joy into your own life. Class enrollment opens in September, and you can learn more by going to allthehappier.com and signing up for our newsletter. I will end today's episode with a challenge, an invitation in honor of Jesse and Scarlett. Today, replace an angry thought with a loving thought. That's it. If you do nothing else, choose one loving thought over any angry thought. It will start to change the way you think and the way you respond. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard at Podkit Productions. Our sound engineer is Kelly Kramerick, and our associate producer is Tara Daigle. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca Cola, Pepsi, or 7 Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.